If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. When they were released, they went out to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders, uh, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. I was all signed up for men's advance until Greg said, if you want to hang out with dudes in the woods. And uh, I said, I don't think I want to do that. I think I want to stay inside. Which you can. They do have indoor accommodations if you'd like to stay inside. It's where I will be. It's where I will be. Well, um, we're, we're... talking about the book of Acts, and, and the book of Acts is written in the first century. Most of the New Testament, uh, well, actually all of the New Testament was written in the first century. And, um, and in the first century, the, the Romans, they, they were known for crucifying people, so it wasn't a shock that they crucified uh, Jesus. They crucified thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and there's two, but there are only really two people that we know that were, uh, from history, that we know that were, we know the names of, I should say. Uh, one, you probably, hopefully, should know the name, which is Jesus. Jesus, right? And the other name you may not know and maybe probably don't know because you have to like pay attention to things like history. So do you know the name of the second person? Spartacus. Yes. <laughs> he was at the other service, I've been told. <laughs> he cheated. That's okay. That's okay. If you ain't cheating, you're not trying. Uh, so we... Um, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, so anyway, but Spartacus, though, if you, for those who don't know Spartacus, and it's 99% of you, um, he, was, he led a slave rebellion. And uh, that, that was a scary thing for the Romans because about a third of the population were slaves. And so if the slaves kind of figured out that they could, uh, you know, 
they got confidence that they could take over Rome. And so they wanted to make an example. And they made an example of Spartacus and they crucified him along with many others. And the message they want to send is you do not mess with Rome. And so they made sure that everyone knew about this and they, they let it be known what happened to Spartacus. And they had their historians and their writers write about this. And that's why we know about Spartacus. But what's a mystery, if you pay attention to um, just kind of how history works, is how do we know about Jesus? Um, how is it that this Jewish carpenter who lived in Judea, which is basically like the armpit of the Roman Empire, how do we know about this man? Uh, nobody wanted to go there. Uh, Roman historians never wrote about him. Jewish historians never wrote him. But we've got four accounts, four biographies of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know more about Jesus than, you, than we know about any Caesar, any emperor, anyone who lived in that time period. We know all this. How do we know so much? How did this fragile movement make it out of the first century when there was so much against it? Um, there was nobody in power who was a Christian, nobody with a lot of money. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was... It's, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. I mean, I mean, how did it make it out of the early part of the first century with the Jewish people? They didn't want it to spread. They had the law on their sides. They tried to do everything they did. That's why they got rid of Jesus. You know, how did it, and then the, the second part of the, the, the century, the Romans really upped their game. They tried to get rid of the Christians. They, uh, they used them as human candles. They used them, they fed them to lions. They stole their property. They put them in prison. They did all kinds of things, and, but yet it kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people uh, were coming uh, to, to believe and trust in, in Jesus. It, within 30 years, which is the time span of the book of Acts, we see that the gospel went from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, which is 1,500 miles, and so it had gone that far. How did this happen? It's a legit question. Well, the good news is this guy named Luke, he wrote an orderly account of everything that happened. He wrote an orderly account off of what he saw, but also other eyewitnesses. He wrote an orderly account of the life of Jesus. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And he wrote an orderly account of the beginnings and the, the start of the early church, known as the Book of Acts, which is short for the Acts of the Apostles. And in this book, again, we get eyewitness account, which is very important of how this all started. And what we see is the church started as a movement of 120 people who were eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it all happened in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, within two months, because it, the day the church really got its start was a day called Pentecost, which was how many days after the resurrection? 50. Pentecost, we had this lesson, 50, 50. Anyway, that's all right. I, I forgot. Know your audience, Brian. History's not good. Okay, so we... Uh, so it's 50 days after the resurrection, and uh, this, so this happened. This is really important. This happened in Jerusalem. This didn't happen in some galaxy far, far away, but it happened like 100 yards or 200 yards from where they crucified Jesus. Ancient Jerusalem was very, very small, and it happened within two months. 3,000 people believed that Jesus died for their sins, and then it kept growing and growing and growing, all in the same city where Jesus was crucified and, and buried, but now had risen. And uh, they had this, and the reason why it, it, it went through the first century, and the reason why we know about it today, is that they had a very, very simple mission. And that is, Jesus had died, that he was buried, and he rose 
to new life, and anyone who calls upon the name of, the Jesus, name of Jesus will be saved and their lives will be transformed. They believed it. They didn't just give mental assent to it. They believed it and they lived it. They lived it. They, they, they were willing to die for it. They sold their possessions. They, they, did, they put everything at risk so that they could spread the good news of this risen Savior. The church did not start as an organization focused inward, but a movement focused outward. And it grew and grew and grew. But you know what happened over time? Let me just fast forward a minute. You know what happened over time? The church got buildings. The church got comfortable chairs. They used to, aren't you glad that you're in a nice, comfortable, I have to stand, but you get to, you're in a nice, comfortable chair. Uh, plenty of parking, fresh brewed coffee to your specifications, um, you know, kids ministry that teach the Bible, that entertain your kids. They know all of their allergies and their favorite bedtime story. I mean, it's just got clever. It got organized. It got smart. And by the way, it needs to. There's nothing wrong with being organized. There's nothing wrong with being clever. In fact, a lack of organization leads to other problems. We'll talk about that two weeks after Easter. But somewhere in the mix of all this, as it began to add things, as it began to, it, the message got lost. And this outwardly focused movement began to turn inward. And, and what I've realized as a pastor, I've been leading this church for 14 years and just kind of helping other churches out and just kind of paying attention to the culture at large, is I've learned that the change from an outward focus to an inward focus happens really, really quickly. In fact, I would say it this way. There is a, there's a gravitational pull for, for a church or really an individual to turn inward. In fact, unless we fight this, um, this pull to focus on ourselves will win. It will happen sooner than you think. For the church to move forward, the biggest headwind it faces isn't some external force. It's not any law. It's not any government it's not the it's not the culture it's nothing outside of itself rome it, it was against the law to be a christian rome tried to squeeze it out the jews tried to squeeze it out and it survived and the reason why it survived is because it did not look inward it looked outward it knew that it had to fight against this inward pull this this gravitational pull to look inward and it shouldn't be a mystery to us because the, there's this guy named uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was an early church leader, and he wrote tons of letters. One of the letters he wrote was to this church in Ephesus. We know it as Ephesians. And in chapter 2, he says there are three enemies of spiritual life. There's the world, there's the, there's the devil, and there's the flesh. The world, the world systems, the way it does things. It's why people aren't nice. It's politics everywhere. That's world systems. There's a devil. We know him. But but Paul and other New Testament writers would say the biggest enemy of your spiritual life that you really need to look out for is your flesh. Now, the flesh isn't talking about your skin, but it's a Bible word that means that part of you that's not yet submitted to God. You see, we all just kind of want to do what we want to do. It's, it's part of what's to be human. When I'm hungry, I want to eat. When I'm tired, I want to sleep. When I'm bored, I want to be entertained. We want what we want, and, and our flesh... It has its desires, and they're not necessarily evil, but they can lead to. So anyway, so there's this pull inward that we have to, to, to fight because it's pulling us away from spiritual life. Uh, and that's why Paul said this to the, the, to the Galatians in uh, chapter 5. He says, for you were, you were called to freedom. In fact, the, the, the chapter starts out that way. 
that you're about freedom, that we are called to freedom, that in Christ that we are free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We have freedom in Christ. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity. There's that word again, for the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to make it about you. But make it about other people. Serve them. Serve other people. Make it about other people. Paul's saying you have to, don't use your freedom to make it about you. You got to make it about, because here's what happened if you don't. Verse 15, he says, because you'll bite and devour one another. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another when you make it about you. And some of you could tell stories. You know, you, you grew up in a church that was like this. You know, they, you know, your parents got divorced and, you know, the way that you treated your mom and, you know, the way that, you know, or there's some fight over the carpet or, you know, this deacon did this or the wife of the deacon did that and they didn't like the pastor and so they just left and, blah, 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 and bit each other and consumed each other. There's a pull inward. So much so, so much so, check this out. Here, here's some stats for you. Um, in America, it, for every... It, it takes 85 church members to help one person know God. It takes 85 church members. Now, I read a lot of books about, the, you know, the state of the church and all that kind of stuff. And they say that a, a church that's, that's really effective evangelistically, I mean really effective, like top 4%, uh, it only takes 20 church members to help one person know God. Now, for those of you who are in business, if you had 20 salespeople and you only got one sale, would you say business is going well? You would probably gather your salespeople together and be like, what in the world are you doing? But it doesn't seem to bother the church because there's this pull inward. It's about us. It's about what we want. As long as my needs are getting met, everything's fine. There's this line in this book called Purpose Driven Life, which is is the best opening line of any book outside the Bible. It says, it's not about you. What's not about you? Everything is not about you. Life is not about you. One of the best things that you could do for your spiritual life is to write over your entire life, it's not about me. To write over your finances, it's not about me. To write over your calendar, it's not about me. To write over your career, it's not about me. Because here's how insidious this poll is. It just, it, is that it, good things Good things pull us inward. I mean, things like family. Things like family can pull us away from this. Our, our jobs, our careers, uh, you know, putting food on the table. There, there are some really like, these aren't bad things. Our desire for space and preferences and the thing, you know, whatever. These aren't bad things. That's why it's so, because there's no black and white, like, okay, here are the inward things to do and here are the outward. I mean, there's a couple like that, but mostly it's, it's kind of gray. But what you have to do, you have to be brave enough. And, and I'm, you're here, so I'm, you're brave enough. And so you're, you got to be brave enough to take your life and look 30,000 feet, to, to look way up here and say, okay, is, what, is the, what is the direction that my life is going? Am I, is my life about me or is my life about other people? And then we have to do that as a church community. 
we have to ask tough questions. Say, are we drifting? Because the only reason why the church made it out of the first century is there's always been a remnant of people who did not make it about them, but they kept this outward focus. Somebody got on a boat to come here to Sarah. You see, we used to be the ends of the earth. I don't know if you know that or not. Somebody risked. Somebody said, their life is more important than my life. Somebody did that. And that's the only reason why the church made it out of the first. It's the only reason why a third of the population believes that Jesus died for their sins. The tendency is to drift inward. And I don't think there's an area of their life that makes this more clear than your prayer life. The prayer has been said that the prayer is a language of desire. Like we, we pray what we uh, desire. And um, one of the ways that you know that if you've drifted is just to look at your prayer life. And if I was to ask you that question, what does your prayer life consist of? Um, my guess is for a lot of people, and this isn't everyone, but for a lot of us, this is what we pray for our food. Okay, we pray for our food. We pray that we would be safe when we travel. I'm traveling and pray to be which, you know, on one hand, is, it might be insulting to God. God's like, are you sober? You know, you put on your seatbelt. If you drive the speed limit, I don't really need to do, you don't need divine intervention for a safe travel. But, you know, if that's what, so we pray for safe travel. We pray if we get sick, if our kids are, if we, if we are married and we want to be married, we pray for that. We pray for kids. We pray to get pregnant. We pray to get, the, to get the job, we pray to get the raise, we pray to get the A, we pray to get the, whatever it is, we pray. So in other words, let me ask you this way. If, if God answered all of your prayers in 2018, who would be better off? You'd be 15 or 20 pounds lighter. If you're single and want to be married, you'd be married. If you're married, you may be single. And if you, <laughs> if you wanted to get pregnant, you got pregnant. If your kids were sick, they'd be healthy. Your, all your travel is safe. You have no diseases. You have no disabilities. Everything is good. And if things go really well, when you die, you'll just kind of fall asleep and nothing ever bad will ever really happen. That is a good life. That is a good life if you've drifted inward. You see, there's nothing wrong with I pray all those prayers. I pray all those prayers, and you should keep praying those prayers. I'm not making fun. I was making fun, but I didn't, I'm not saying don't stop praying those prayers. But what happens if that's all you pray about, and that's all we pray about? That's our only concern. Those are, those are inward prayers, and, and those prayers benefit us. And if, if we're just about us, you know, inward Christians turns into inner, and if that inward Christianity becomes a norm in the church, then we, then we stop being the church and like start doing churchy things and then we become church people. Ooh, like that would be, that would be a, a really bad thing to become church people. We'd end up getting inward and, and, and fighting against each other until we get on each other's nerves so much that we just go somewhere else to be church people. And that is the cycle that roughly 90% of Christians in America are in. But here's what I know about you. I know you want more than that. I know you want, you want your life to count, or you wouldn't be at this church. Because we talk about this stuff too much, that you get offended and angry and just leave. 
I know you want more, unless you're new. If you're new, welcome. <laughs> have, some, have some fresh coffee. But if we're going to be this kind of community, we have to fight this drift individually and collectively. And one of the ways that we're going to fight it is how we pray. Now, of course that means if we pray, that our, that our reflex needs to be prayer. Prayer isn't a, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a program. It's not a, it's not a activity. It's an instinct. It's like no one has to, um, you know, like you see those signs, have you prayed today? No one has to ask, hey, did you breathe today? No, you just breathe. Like for, for this to be really pumping, it's like, no, pray. We want to pray. We want to pray without ceasing. We'll always be praying. And so I'm going to look at this prayer meeting. We're going to look at how the, this church prayed. And so we're going to, we're going to look at it in the book of Acts. And so Acts 4.23, when they were released, they as John and Peter, the, the big guys, um, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, isn't it cool? Just on a side note, I just now caught this. You learn something new every day, and I just know. He calls them friends. He didn't say they went to the, to the <coughs> church folk or the, he went to their, anyway, went to their friends and reported what all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So this is what happened. Peter and John, they're the big guys, and they got thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, Right? And they were released from prison with a strong warning to never, ever, ever, ever say the name of Jesus in public ever, ever again. And now we're getting ready to read their very first recorded prayer meeting. And what do you think that they prayed about? What do you think that we would pray? I know what we would pray about. I mean, if you just got out of like, I mean, here's the Romans. They love to crucify people. They love to beat. They love to do all this. And they, they're telling us to never, ever do this again. You know, the Jewish leaders are saying, don't ever do this again. Like, I think I would come into that prayer meeting like, whew, we need to pray for protection. We need to pray that God protect us. He needs to like send a hedge around us, like whatever that means, like just do something to to protect and keep us safe and maybe change the hearts of leaders. And, and maybe, if, if, maybe if the laws were different, maybe if the leaders were different, maybe if culture was different, maybe, maybe that would be better. Or like maybe there's some, something. What, I think that's what we, and then we come up with a really great plan. Like, okay, Peter and John, you can never be together. You're all that we have. We can't lose both of you. So you can never be at the same place at one time. We get a security detail. We get like black escalades with guys with sunglasses and ear thingies, and, and we would make sure that nothing ever bad happened to them. And tone down the rhetoric. I mean, when they ask you a question, don't say, hey, you killed Jesus. Don't say, we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey God. We know that that's true, but you don't have to say it to them. John, you have a lot of stuff about love. Do more of that stuff. Not that. just offends people. But how did they pray? Here's how they pray. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. To, they worshiped and said, sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea. And their instinct was to appeal to the sovereignty of God, that they believed they had this, they had this 
deep, deep, deep believe in the sovereign purposes of God. Let me ask you a question. What if your first thought in a problem you experienced was, God, you're in control? I mean, it was like a reflex. Something bad happened. You can't see it, but you're going to believe it. I believe, Lord God, that, that everything is under your control. And there's a reason why I'm experiencing this. I don't know it, but I believe it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 4610. You probably know this one. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now, what you may not know, I hope that you do, but you may not know the second part of that verse. Here's the second part of that verse. I will be exalted among the nations. One of the things that just irks me about Christian subculture is what they do to the verses in the Bible. And this verse is not about your moment of serenity, sipping coffee with a view of the mountain outside your window. That's not what this is about. This is about a moment of pain, of discouragement, and you are hard-pressed, and you appeal to the sovereignty of God. You appeal to your own heart to be still, to know that he is God. Why? So you can have peace? Well, that'll come, but it'll only come because your focus is on the exaltation of God among all nations. See, the reason why we make this about our moment of serenity so we can have some peace and quiet is we've fallen prey to the the drift. So what if, what if, if something, whatever happened, let's just say something bad happened, bad, by, you, know, you get a disability, you get sick, you lose a job, you know, you don't get the raise, you know, the relationship goes bad, you can't get pregnant, whatever it is, fill in the blank. What if, what if, what if, what if you said in that moment, your reflex was, God, you are in control. God, help me leverage this bad situation so that your name would be exalted among all nations. What if on the flip side, let's be chipper for a moment, what if something good happened? Something bad didn't happen, something good happened. You get the raise, you get pregnant, you, um, you, know, you get the job, you get a good grade, you get whatever, you, know, you get some free time, you have the talent, you have the ability, God, You are sovereign and in control. God, will you help me to leverage this good thing so that your name would be exalted among the nations? When you can do that, maybe you are fighting this drift inside your heart. It's why we can be, by the way, Psalm 4610 is why we can be passionate. We can say big things about the church. A lot of times we'll say like, man, we want to bless St. Louis and through St. Louis the world, I'm being air. We're just appealing to what is true about who God is. God will be exalted. This will happen. This isn't like it might happen, and we want to be a part of it. And I know you do too. So this is what they pray. They appeal to the sovereignty of God, and we're going to keep seeing that. But then they, they start quoting scripture. Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So they're saying like, why, why do people plot bad things against you? Because check out verse 46. He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. People have bad plans against those who trust in the God of the Bible. Verse 47, for truly, in, now they're taking it into their situation. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So they're saying people are against Jesus whom you anointed. You anointed him, they're against him. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Jews and Gentiles, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. So both were in on this. 
Check out verse, to do, check this out, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, to predetermine. Um, that word at pre means before, destined means hand, it's uh, before uh, planned, predestined. Here's what they're saying. They're saying that there's nothing that happens in this world that you have not have a predetermined plan for, bad or good. Even and maybe especially the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, they are appealing to the sovereignty of God big time. And, and I don't want you to miss this because this is even more, they were oozing out scripture. They were, when they got cut, they bled the word of God. And so you see this group of people who were appealing always to the sovereignty of God, but at the same time, like they, they knew scripture and they, don't, they didn't have access to scripture like we do, but they knew scripture. And here's the thing, when, the, when our back's up against the wall, like we need to be able to appeal to the promises of God. And step number one to appealing the promises of God is you gotta know what they are. There are over 3,000 promises to you in the Bible. Do you know that? I wanna know every one of them. I wanna know when I'm going through a, a bad time, when I'm walking through the valley that I know, God, you will lead me to still waters, you will lead me to green pastures. That when I'm feeling um, uh, pressed in upon just stress and time, and, and I feel that a lot, that God, if I, if I lean on him, that he will renew my strength, that I will mount up like an eagle, I will begin to soar. When, when things are tight financially, that I know that he who did not spare his own son, will he not give me all things? He takes care of the birds. He takes care of the grass. He's going to take care of me. When I'm feeling like there's this distance and maybe I'm alone and maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm in, maybe I'm out, that I know that I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God, not death, not nakedness, not famine, that no one can bring a charge against me. Why? Because Jesus Christ justified me. And there are many, many, many more promises. You know, one of the things that they say about the great quarterbacks, you know, the kind of quarterbacks that you hate, like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, that they just, they watch so much film. They watch so much film, like they know more than the other coach knows about what, they know more than the, they know more about the other team's defense than the other team's defense does. Um, and Peyton's last Super Bowl, he, wa he watched film for three straight days. Like he didn't leave the film room for three straight days. And he watched a defense from 1974 on those three days because it mimicked the kind of defense he was getting ready to face. And he wanted to, he wanted to know of every scenario. So when, that, when his plans failed, he knew what to do. And we need to be those who soak in the promises of God to know the word of God. So when our plans fail, and they will, when things don't go the way we think we should go, and they will, we ooze the promises of God. And so when we pray, we're not just praying like, you know, flimsy, emotional prayers. We're praying, we're, 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 we're thundering the promises of God. We're thundering the promises of God. And that's gonna build our spirit. That's what, I mean, that's what David did. David had to say to himself in Psalm 103, come on, soul, bless the Lord. Don't forget his benefits. And then he just began to rattle off all these promises, all these benefits. 
Okay, in verse 29, here's the gimme, gimme part. Here comes the prayer request. They worship sovereignty of God. You know, they did all the right things. They preached scripture. Now they're going to get into kind of the selfish stuff, okay? But what do they pray? They say, now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word. What's that say? That word, sorry. I didn't, I was, I didn't lead up very well. <laughs> With all boldness. I'm reading that. I'm like, boldness? What do you need more boldness for? Isn't, I think you've got boldness. I mean, you just, you just like trash talk the, the people who threw you in prison. I think you got boldness down. In fact, I think, you, I think boldness is what got you in trouble in the first place. You may need some discernment, but I don't think you need boldness. <laughs> Unless unless they understood that the greatest risk to their spiritual life and the advancement of this movement of people, that there was no threat outside of them that could ever do anything to stop. They must have remembered what Jesus said, that the gates of hell will not prevail. But here's what can prevail in your life that thing inside of you that wants to make it about you. And so they thought the Roman government is not a risk to us. The Jewish leaders, they're not a risk to us. The culture is not a risk, but here's a risk. The risk is we would stop being bold in our proclamation of the gospel. That's the risk. They understood this drift to look inward is the biggest risk that you and I face. And so they prayed, God, will you give us bold? Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed for boldness? Have you ever prayed, God, will you give me boldness with my coworker? Will you, will you imagine if we did that? But not only that, they didn't just pray for boldness. Check out verse 30. It says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, will you do a miracle? As I go out today, God, give me boldness with my neighbors. Give me boldness with my coworkers. Give me, give me boldness to speak up and, and, and reach out your hand and do a miracle in their life. To be a sign that you are who you say you are. I mean, they were just like hedging. They had put everything on God doing a miracle. And if they, God didn't do a miracle, they were donors. They just leaned upon him and they knew his sovereignty. They knew like if we preach the gospel his, and we don't die, his name will be exalted. If we preach the gospel and we die, his name will be exalted. Win-win. Imagine what would happen if you added to your, don't subtract the other one. Still pray for hedges and babies and all that stuff. Keep praying that. Don't stop praying those prayers. But what if you added to them? What if you added to them? God, would you give me boldness? And would you reach out your hand and do a miracle? I, I know at the very least you would see more opportunities. If you prayed for opportunities, you would see, it's that whole thing, you know, like if you get a red sedan, you'll see more red sedans. It's the way your brain works. You will see opportunity and God will give you opportunities and he will reach out his hand and he will do a miracle 
in the lives of your friends and your coworkers. There's a group of people in the church that's just kind of like, who have taken on what they've called that Acts Challenge. There's a Facebook group about it. And they're just, they're encouraging each other to share it, to get out and share the gospel. And that's what they're seeing. As they begin to spur each other on, as they, as they begin to like press against this thing, to look inward, they're seeing themselves step out in boldness and they're seeing God do miracles. And we have opportunities. We have opportunities all around us. We have a huge opportunity with Easter. I mean, um, in a few weeks, you can invite someone to Easter. I mean, they're super likely to come if you pick that day. And then... And then, verse 31, it says, And when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God. Bold. Nothing in there about, God, will you protect us? I would not blame them. It would not even strike me as odd if that whole prayer was about protecting them. But what does strike me as odd is there's not one word of protection. Because they did not see the threat to their physical life, their possessions, or anything like that as a threat to them. They only saw, the only risk that they saw was the risk of them turning inward. We're going to gather together to pray this Friday to stretch out his hand, ask God to stretch out his hand, do a miracle. We're going to ask God to give us boldness. And I just want to humbly say, and is that I think you need to be there. And here's why you need to be there. You need to be there, number one, for you. Because you have an enemy. And your enemy is your own flesh. And if you don't do war with that thing, you will turn inward. It happens super quick. You have to fight it. You have to say, I want my life to be something more than about me. I want to make it about something. I want to make it about God and others. Which means that you have to pray. Because I don't know if you know that, but you can't do anything. You cannot do anything. You cannot do anything to change the heart of a human being. It is impossible because we're not into moral conformity. We're into God genuinely impacting, arresting, changing, transforming the human heart. That's something only God can do. You know, um, when my mom, when she went into the hospital, you feel this like desperation, like you can't do anything. And when you add up what you care about with what you can do about something, you just have to pray because you're just like, oh, you feel so desperate. And when your life is about, God, I want to see people saved, then you realize I can't do anything about it. It causes you to be desperate to cry out to God. And you need to cultivate your soul to say, I need to be there. And you, you need to be there for you, but you need to be there for we. Like we, we all need this for each other. You know, Hebrews 10, you know, we're not into guilt trips, but Hebrews 10 says like, you know, continue to spur each other on to love and good deeds to not fall into the habit of not getting together. We need to get together because we have a corporate cause. We don't, have an indi- we don't just have an individual cause. We have a corporate cause together, how God would use us. And we have things that we're contending for as a church that we need God to intervene. And I think you need to be a part of it for we. And here's what I'd say. Like, Jubilee Church is just that. It's Jubilee Church. It has a separate name. Jubilee Church is not Brian Mowry Ministries. Like, this isn't my thing that I'm trying to enroll you into. I'll say it this way. Jubilee Church is as much your church as it is mine. And every single person in this room who belongs to this church, um, you guys can, everybody else can keep drinking coffee, who calls Jubilee Church home, you have a decision to make. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? And you have an active role. You have an active role 
and saying, I wanna be a part of a church that fights the inward pull and looks outward. I think a church should be about other people. I think a church should be about the hurting and the lost. I think a church should be about the poor and the marginalized. If you believe that you have an active role because the biggest threat is not what the government does, it's not the laws, it's not culture, it's not this, it is none of that. The, the threat to us being effective in what God has called us to do is in this room. And we need to fight that together. We need to fight it as individuals and we need to fight it together. My time is obviously up. So let me stand, when we stand and we'll pray. Unless a train is walk, coming in. Was that a caboose sound? If that, we really need to hurry up. It's all part of your plan, God. I just want to pray for the grace of God to fall upon every soul. When I stay in my flesh, again, flesh is just a word that means when I stay unsubmitted to God and I, and I think about what I want, my soul gets tired. My soul gets weary. And then I come and I listen to about what I ought to be doing. And I get plunged into discouragement. See, the, the enemy works with your flesh. He accuses you. just want the grace of God to come upon your soul right now. The grace of God that says it's not about what you do, but it's about what I have done on your behalf. Christianity is not a, a ladder to climb. It's not a contest to be more moral. It is a, it is a, it, it is a receiving it is about receiving. I just want you to receive God's grace. I want you to receive their free. You're free. You're free from the law. You're free from death. You're free from sin. There's nothing that holds you down. But may we hear the encouragement of Paul to not use that freedom for an opportunity of the flesh, but we learn to love and serve one another.